Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Zach Hitz. He's canon for worship and liturgy at the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. He also blogs at ZachHicks.com, and he wrote a great book called The Worship Pastor, which came out last year. It's well worth picking up. Zach, welcome to Snaxis. So glad to be here. It's, I'm, I'm glad to have you. You are a worship pastor, a preacher, musician, friend, renaissance man, and you're going to be an expert guest for me on these three texts this week. Well, you're very kind. I'm excited. Uh, I'll be preaching these texts at my church, and so I've been thinking a lot and letting these texts swim in my heart and speak to one another. So it's been been a good conversation thus far, even. Yeah. What, so let's start with the... Do you, will you touch on all these texts, too, in the sermon, do you think, or will you focus on... I typically don't try to weave them in. Uh, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, since I was studying them all in a little bit more depth for this conversation, I should always study it this deeply, but I don't. Um, <laughs> I was noticing uh, the connection between the Thessalonians passage and Matthew, the connection being uh, an illustration of what good leadership, good pastoral leadership looks like from First Thessalonians, Paul sort of modeling his gospel ministry and saying, this is good leadership, and Jesus calling out the bad leadership of the, the Pharisees and scribes, and the contrast between the two, and the, uh, the linchpin seems to be a humility and an honesty about the heart that makes mm. the difference. And other than that, I don't have any idea why the lectionary folks chose Joshua alongside it. I know Joshua gets pegged as a leadership book, but this particular passage uh, isn't so much about uh, Joshua's leadership, way more about God's faithfulness. So I sort of read those three things in, or those things into the the three texts that we've got before us today. Yeah, it's interesting too, because the lectionary, like there's kind of a Lectio Continua track, and then there's a, another track that right. the Old Testament readings more in sync with, you know, whatever the, the gospel reading I think is, or the, so, so this is the, this is sort of, but the reason we're in Joshua, I guess, is because we're going. Right. We're walking through, through it. That's right. Moses, and that makes sense. To Moses. So let's start with Joshua. Here we yeah. have, we have the handoff last week, kind of the bittersweet farewell to Moses, because this is, you know, this is the, uh, the sort of um, lesson from Moses, right? If right. God, if God says, speak to the rock, don't use the staff. <laughs> right, right, right. Moses has a few, uh, few lessons learned from God that he's passing on to his brother Joshua. And now we're at this spot. Uh, I was thinking a lot about this because this passage is, is walking through the Jordan. So it is the crossing over after long waiting period. Um, I was remembering that I sat in a, a, a talk once that my friend John O'Linebaugh gave, and he was actually speaking about law and gospel. But in, in doing so, he was talking about the way Paul exegetes the Old Testament. And what I find here is the latter half of what Jono was talking about, that when the Israelites uh, wandered in the desert, it was a true, uh, and not a metaphorical, not a symbolic, it was a true baptism into death. Uh, one of the things he pointed out was that 
the book of Numbers, it, it begins with a genealogy and it ends with a totally different genealogy. And one of the points was to say, because what happens in Numbers? Law. Law happens in Numbers. Mm-hmm. And the point is, uh, when you're under the law, it kills you. And this Numbers period is between the entry into the water and the exit from the water, the Red Sea being that entry and the Jordan being that exit into the promised land. And in the middle is this death that Israel has to go through. There's a whole generation that dies. And here we are finally on the other side. And there's this um, this kind of thematic, providential, beautiful, symbolic, eschatological moment where Israel's rising out of the death of all that numbers brought and here they are on the brink and move into the other side and God's presence holds back the water and they stand in the middle as Joshua's leadership is kind of authenticated and established. Yeah, it, it is interesting too. And you do have a new Israel, like literally, I mean, the, the people who are grieving yes. Moses, yes. they are a new generation. I yep. mean, Moses, is, is, he, he is like the Nancy Pelosi of the, you know, <laughs> hanging on to his leadership. Right, yeah. No, but yeah, I mean, it is, it is, it is a, new, a new Israel. Um, right, yeah. yep. It's interesting, uh, Tremper Longman, and um, there's, a, there's this uh, commentary series by Erdman's um, just called the lectionary commentary, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a reading, it's readings from the first, it's, it's just divided into three books, the first, second, and third readings. And totally. So I found excellent. that very helpful, by the way. I found that whole series really helpful. Uh, yeah. The contributors are excellent. Yep. A series like that is only as good as its contributors. And right. the, the contributors are consistently good. But he says, he talks about this, you know, this pervasive theme of water. Um, how right. God, you know, splits the sea, cause rivers to dry, dry up, but, you know, that the, this constant sort of water involved in Israel's deliverance. And he concludes, he says, with this perva- pervasive Old Testament theme in mind, we cannot help but think of Jesus Christ who calms the water so that he and those who have confidence in him can walk on the water. The Gospels, particularly Matthew, show us that Jesus' life is patterned on the Exodus, wilderness wandering, right. conquest, conquest pattern. His baptism was equivalent to the Red Sea crossing, which is followed by 40 days in the wilderness where he was tested in the same way that Israel was. Of course, he was obedient while Israel was disobedient. He died on the cross on the eve of the Passover, that great festival of the Exodus, showing that he is our Passover lamb. As a result, those of us who follow him today are in a period of wilderness wandering. We look forward to the future when we will finally cross the Jordan and enter the promised land. Yeah, I think that actually that observation is a huge exegetical key, especially if we're trying to be believers with the early church who are Christocentric in our interpretation. Uh, Matthew gives us that key and a few other of the gospel writers like Longman's pointing out that Jesus, as the new Israel, uh, walks through this pattern. Like you see it you see it in Matthew all over the place, especially because he's writing to his Jewish readers about Jesus in the genealogies. He's from Rahab, you know. He points that out, and that's that's all in the context of Joshua here. And uh, at the end of Matthew, you have Jesus saying, "Lo, I am with you always," and the presence of God being a rich theme in the book of Joshua. Jesus comes out of Egypt, right? Uh, Mary and Joseph have to flee there, and they come out of there before he's born. He's baptized, like he said. Um, and Jesus is actually baptized in the Jordan, which is right, right where we find ourselves in the middle of here. And then right after the baptism comes this war with the enemy, just like Israel. As soon as they cross, they've got to go to Jericho and engage in God's war in that way. And Jesus does that. And then, and then right after the war comes, Jesus starts announcing kingdom things. The kingdom's here. It's come. And he begins this ministry of the kingdom of God. And finally, he calls 
the 12. Uh, and so I think that the parallels are really thick that Matthew would have us read back and to look at through uh, look at Joshua through these uh, Christ-centered eyes and see Jesus really all over the place. Yeah. of Jesus, let's go to the letters of one of his servants, the Apostle Paul. Bad transition, but oh well. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Jesus, let's talk about Speaking another thing Je- Jesus so wrote. Let's talk about somebody, something else about Jesus. Um, so yeah, we have this another reading, the, the lecture is in First Thessalonians, which right. is probably Paul's earliest letter. First Thessalonians 2, verses 9 through 13, where Paul is talking about the labor and toil that he and his fellow kingdom workers um, engaged in so that they wouldn't be a burden to anybody while they were among them proclaiming the gospel. Right. Yeah, the, the commentators that I was reading was reading was making a good point about, uh, especially because Thessalonians uh, first and second, both deal with a lot of eschatological themes. They deal with the community wrestling with Jesus' return and end times, like the kind of eschatology that we think of. And um, the commentators point out that Paul is putting pastoral ministry, in particular his pastoral ministry, in an eschatological context. He's uh, kind of saying that the end game should inform the way pastoral ministry should happen now. Uh, and Paul's very interested in pointing out, hey, we're not here to exploit you. We wanted to preach to you a naked gospel that had no other accoutrements so that you would go, what's this guy really about? You know, Because evidently there were a lot of, lot of people floating around in those communities uh, trying to make money off the gospel. You read that kind of stuff going on in, in Philippians and other places, but evidently as Christianity spread counterfeits and just money-making versions of Christianity, you know, prosperity gospel, whatever you want to call it. It was, it was going right along suit, right alongside all this stuff. And, and Paul was saying that the fact that Jesus uh, is returning soon gives an urgency and a clarity and a focus and a sobriety to our ministry. And let me describe that sobriety to you. Uh, it comes not because, uh, you know, we're doing anything fancy or we're trying to make money off of you. In fact, we're trying to make money elsewhere just so we can let the gospel speak for itself. And I think for us, that means our eschatology uh, gives our ministry a kind of urgency and earnestness. You know, the priesthood of all believers, if every last Christian is a, is a minister, it means that um, behind us, there's an energy and there's a focus to the way that we live our lives and the way that we conduct ourselves uh, in this world, in our, in our vocations. And I think that holds true, maybe especially for pastors like me. Can you imagine the person that was saying, like, you know what? Here's a money-making scheme if I ever saw it. Crucified <laughs> Jew. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And a little Jew, yeah, this is a Jewish sect. You know, wow. This, this one really is a money maker. This yeah. will sell. This yeah, is great. It's a great Shocking. scheme. Yeah, it um, is. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because Karl Barth says that, that a Christianity that's not thoroughly eschatological is, is no Christianity at all. And, and I think of something that Paul Zoll writes about in The First Christian, which I think is, is a really, it's one of those brilliant insights that when I read it, I was like, why haven't I read this before? But, but I don't think I have. And he says, you know, Jesus transforms John the Baptist apocalyptic Jewish preaching, which is not yet, but soon. Right. To already and not yet, mm-hmm. which makes space for the time between the times. And he thinks, 
Paul's also thinks it's that eschatology that makes space for the sort of Simon Eustace at Picador, this you know the at same time sinner and saint that 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 yes. being being on the way as opposed to the sort of yep. all right you get, get yourself together so that when the end day comes you're not you know you're not one of the people on the short end of the stick of judgment it's no the judgment has come and, no that's and, good and there's a yep. new day and then, yep. and it's also coming I and I feel like uh, that's one of the what you just pointed out is one of the great underappreciated insights about Luther's simile because I've always heard it described as anthropology of like I I should describe the simile as my human experience of I'm simultaneously a sinner and justified uh, but when when you hear Luther talk about it he's spending way more time talking about the cosmos and eschatology as simul in the sense of we're, we're simultaneously in the old age and the new age and that comes with that that overlapping of the spheres and the, the football that's in the middle of those spheres where we live uh, is a really important way of thinking about the simul for us. You know, speaking of uh, Bart, one of the verses that stuck out to me in, in 1 Thessalonians was verse 13, where Paul kind of makes what may be an offhand comment. He just says, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. And I've been thinking a lot about that lately. I've been doing a Bible study with guys over here in our church in Hebrews, the living and active word. And I'm just reminded that, that Paul even upholds this idea that you hear articulated so well by Bart when he says the preached word of God is the word of God. And I hear Paul saying that same thing uh, when he's talking about the gospel that we declared to you. It's active, it's working, and you believed it. You believed it as the word of God. It became God's word to you. And it reminds me of the fact that um, our ministries as ministers need to be naked like that. And we need to believe in the power, the efficacious power of that preached word and be willing to just do it. On Sunday in and Sunday out. Yeah, and and it, yeah, that this it's interesting because Bart thinks that if there is a sort of uh, Trinitarian analogy, it's in the Word, where he thinks that just as the Father, and he's thinking of as a Western Christian here, like, but just as sort of Christ is the eternal Word, right? Revelation, and so the Word of God written, you know, sort of flows from Christ, the Revelation of God, and then preaching flows from Revelation and the the. the you know, the, the eternal word and the written word, you know, just as the spirit comes from the father and the son preaching comes from Christ and scripture into the living word and proclamation. I love it. And then once you get to the preacher, the simul helps make sense of how you figure out, well, the preaching's not perfect, right? Uh, yet it can still somehow be the delivery mechanism for the word of God from an imperfect vessel. I, for me, that's that's really comforting. And you, you know, I, I, I'm sure anybody that's preached for any amount of time has the experience where people come up and thank you for something <laughs> that you said that you didn't say. Right. And you know you didn't say it. You right. Know, but, but somehow... The Sometimes you intended to say the exact opposite. Right. Like, but yeah, I didn't say that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the spirit, though, it works, you know. And, and, right. to the gospel reading here yeah. we have people with we have the pharisees here are people that um 
we should not uh it looks like um emulate <laughs> right yeah i mean i if i am trying to mind read the lectionary dudes and dudettes who made all this uh come together i do think that they were trying to put a contrast together of what good gospel ministry looks like and what well in the words of jesus burdensome ministry looks like and i guess the the question before us is what's the difference between a burdensome ministry and a ministry that brings freedom. And Paul would say it's a it's a gospel proclamation. It's what the reformers might call. And I, I feel like Jesus is is harping on this or is connecting this, even though he doesn't use this reformational language, but distinguishing between law and gospel. That for uh what what the Pharisees were doing were were muddying the whole system up by um, teaching from the seat of Moses. And interestingly, Jesus says, hey, you're sitting at the seat of Moses. You should listen to them. What they're saying is true, but they don't practice what they preach. Uh, and and uh, maybe it might be Luther that would translate that and say something like, they're not distinguishing between law and gospel because they're providing a burden on the people of God when they practice and offer an example that says, hey, check out this list of rules, this things, uh, these things that we're s- supposed to be doing, putting on these phylacteries and uh, you know, displaying our righteousness before others with these tassels on our garments. And, uh, I f- and he, Jesus has to say, you've got to distinguish. There is the word of God that's coming at you from Moses that they're teaching, and there's something different that actually muddies the waters, and it's their practice. And uh, do as they say, not as they do. Yeah, it's interesting too. Like you, Thomas Merton talks about the difference between seeing yourself and being yourself, mm. right? And and like when you're when you're being yourself, right? You're you're there's a sort of authenticity where or gen, <laughs> or a genuineness anyway, like, like that that you're not thinking about how am I being perceived right now. Right. But then, but then, when you're seeing yourself, you're sort of projecting. Okay, who do I want people to think I am? How, how right. do I want to be perceived? And, and 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 you're angling in that way. And here, I mean, it seems to, that Jesus is getting at this here with the Pharisees that they just they they are so conscious of how they are seen and yeah, want totally. to be seen yeah. and and want to and and are very aware of public opinion and attempting to shape it. I know. I was I was reflect. I was thinking about that. Same thing. And I was thinking about it in reference to just my own self, thinking that the public sphere, you know, the public sphere back then was this physical place. And now for us, it's social media. And I wonder, I wonder how often my behavior on social media is not a similar desire to call attention to my own piety. You know, it may not be like a religious sort. It may be whatever right side of moral outrage I'm trying to position myself on. But I find myself on social media trying to lengthen my tassels and show off my phylacteries and making that a place where I'm not being myself, but I'm seeing myself and operating in a sphere where I'm perceiving others perceiving me, which is incredibly dangerous, at least for the deception of the human heart and the appropriation of the good news of the gospel. Yeah, I, 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 it's interesting that you say about the, the sort of virtue signaling stuff because it's right. You know, on every on every issue, right, on every possible issue, there's this feeling like I've got to weigh in, you know, and I've got to sort of make my stand, and I've got you know, it, it's it's amazing because we are sort of we are this. It, it's interesting because I think what the New Testament, the new perspective on Paul, people get right is in a book like Galatians, the works of the law probably aren't these aren't thought of as, you know, internal and reli- religious, psychological. They're probably identity mm. politics. It's identity politics, mm. which is like we're, it, it's not to say that 
the law gospel reading is, is, is wrong. It's, it's maybe the, the, the way the law works, it, you know, is sociological and, and, and with shaming and identity politics. And there's so much, mm. it, it, it's so much of who we are today. It seems to be constituted by these tribal identities of one sort or the next. So, you know, it's interesting. There's this new website, the Clarity, Church Clarity, where they go through churches and they rate their clarity score on LGBT issues. So, mm, so, and wow. it's, and it's not, and again, they're sort of, no, I mean, it's an LGBT affirming kind of group, but it's funny because they give high clarity scores to very conservative churches, um, mm. uh, you know, and to very liberal churches, but it's like simply it, because they're clear, they're and clear, obvious. right. You know, yeah. you know, when yeah. you go in there, but then all these people that are kind of, that there's all these like unclear, like lack of clarity that are people that, mm. you know, so that's, oh my gosh, so, you know, the, so you think of all the, you know, sort of social pressuring to, you know, position yourself and all these things. It's, it's just, um, yeah. I know. Yeah. We're just in this climate now where statement making, it, we just have to do it. We, there's an urge to make a statement. I was, wa- I was just watching this video. There was some sort of uh, Australian expose of Hillsong Church where they're interviewing a lot of folks there, but you can tell they're eventually getting to try to pin them down on political and, and moral issues. And gosh, the public sphere is, is a place of pressure. And it's a place where it's, it's actually harder in the public sphere to be an authentic self because of all the perceptions distorting reality and, and, um, attempting to try to decomplexify us by asking us questions that make us appear as one-sided as an issue is. And I was just thinking about, you know, I was thinking about the fact if I were interviewed like that, what would I say? And I'm like, I don't know, because I don't think this is a good medium to have this conversation. Uh, And so it's a big struggle of mine uh, to figure out what it is to be a public Christian, because there seems to be some level where Jesus himself is, you know, the the preeminent public Christian, uh, and yet he does it with such a finesse and an authenticity. He does it with a winsomeness and a theological prowess, and maybe maybe this is one area where we just can't imitate Christ, and we need to flee to the wood of the cross and look at our great Savior. Um, but I find that stuff all over the pages of Matthew here, and I only think for Christians it's going to become an increasing issue for us to, to process and figure out how to be graceful in the public sphere. Yeah, and it's interesting because the, the hypocrisy charge, but like, I mean, in some ways, right, the only way to avoid hypocrisy is to have low ideal. <laughs> like, totally. I, I mean, totally. It, it is an issue, yeah. not to uh, say that Jesus is wrong and charging them there, but, but also I think something at the end about exalting and humbling, like the one who exalts themselves, yeah. you know, will be humble, the one humble will be exalted. I think of, I think of something I've been thinking a lot about lately is sort of how sometimes there are, especially in certain kind of conservative Protestant circles, there's all this theology about the cross that doesn't seem yep. to be a theology of the cross. That's right. So it's sort of, it's, it's sort of a, it, it's, it's a covert theology of glory. It's a, it's a, it's yes. a, co- it's a covert sort of, we're the right ones and the people that don't believe this on the atonement are the wrong ones. And they're the, or, you know, right. whereas the real theology of the, uh, you know, of the cross, a theology about the cross is not a theology of the cross. Mm. <laughs> um, it's no theology at all. <laughs> yeah. I find that, uh, and that even leaks into this very thing that Jesus is calling us to, you know, uh, you know, whoever, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And I could immediately as a theologian of glory, take that and say, I'm going to pursue humility. And I'm going to pursue it to the utmost so I can be the most humble person. And eventually I'll write a book, Humility and How I Achieved It by Zach Hicks. You know, and everyone will read it and like learn about my own my own virtue and power and all that that kind of stuff. And realize that even even in Christ's teaching, our inner theologian of glory 
can take it in a way that really isn't what it's about because Jesus is more describing a state of what is for the for the follower of Christ. It isn't about this virtue signaling. It isn't about uh, displaying your righteousness before others. It is about walking humbly with our God. But even that I find just as a normal Christian, strangely dangerous to start pursuing at any level of uh eagerness because I just uh, so clearly turned this good thing into something that makes me feel good before God and before others. And uh, I find it dangerous and I don't know how to fully wrestle with it except to kind of name it and ask Jesus to have mercy on me and and help me and uh, somehow figure out what it means to walk lastly, but not with a sort of American determination, uh, pursue lastness. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that mo- there's this tradition, uh, sort of rabbinic tradition, I think, that Moses was the meekest man on earth. Mm-mm. And yet you have Moses not going into the promised land, right? And yet in Jesus' kingdom, the meek shall inherit the entire earth. The meekest man in the old covenant didn't mm. even get into the promised land, and yet the meek will um, be uh, inherit. Will all inherit the whole earth, and the, and and the way that inheritance comes, of course, is through being humbled by um, right ne- by needing the Savior. Yeah, and I do feel, at least for me, that is where Luther's insights really are helpful in that much of the Christian life is much more God's work on us rather than our work for God. And God is in the business of humbling us to drive us to Jesus. That's just his His thing. And so even if you don't want to pursue humility, God himself will pursue you and bring it to you. Zach, thanks for talking about these texts with me and best of luck preaching. Yeah, Lord have mercy as we preach and pray and lead our churches. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Zach for being on the podcast. You can check out his stuff at ZachHicks.com and get a copy of his book, The Worship Pastor. It came out last year, and it's great. And thanks again to you for listening to the podcast. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.